0: the honor and all the praise and we ask this in jesus name amen you may take your seats thank you i also want to give a special thanks to diego last week he came braved all the ice and storm and uh, did duets with me and i think played your first uh, hymn just all by yourself that was very we're really grateful It's exciting to see what God's doing in and through some of our people in the church. If you'll turn in your Bibles, we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 13. Before we get there, I want to bring the word cloud up and remind you that you're in a Bible-believing church. There should be no confusion. When you step into this building, you ought to see the open Bible in the front of the church. And you ought to realize that man doesn't live by bread alone, but we treasure the word of God. Uh, in fact, in, in Hebrews, it says it's quick and powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, and the word pierces even to the inmost parts. It changes us, and that's why the word of God is so important. In the Bible, you find the words of eternal life, and that's why we talk about being gospel-driven. The good news, the good news is that there is hope Uh, As as we were listening in Sunday school today, and I do want to put a plug in for our brother uh, David, Uh, his Sunday school class, he's going through the book of John all the way up to chapter 13, I think verse 17. Um, Looking forward to it. Uh, Today we were looking at how Jesus was washing the feet and really the the visual parable that was there. Lots to learn, but I do want to encourage you to get into the Bible and study it. You will be blessed coming at 9 o'clock on Sundays as well. But inside this church, we do want you to gather for worship. Don't neglect the assembling of yourselves together, Hebrews 10, 25. We believe that when you come to meet with God, that God does bless you. And uh, even though you can view things and you can see things later and listen to the podcast and uh, maybe see the video again, we do believe that God blesses those who come into his presence seeking his countenance to look more full in his wonderful face. And that's why... When we turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 13, I want to invite you to uh, reverently attend to the public reading of God's inerrant, infallible, inspired words, which were we're given in the originals. Um, That that slide ended up reminding you that these things are so important. That uh, where else can you find the truth that sets people free? When you turn on the television, you're not confident at all. And I think that even today that that people that claim to be newsmakers uh, are so, there's not many people. I think less than 25% of people really believe that folks are telling the truth. Well, I want you to be able to be confident that when you're reading God's word, you have the truth. Uh, Jesus communicated to it and he guaranteed it. So let's reverently attend to the public reading of God's word. We're going to be looking at the first seven verses of Romans chapter 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, in verse 2, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For the rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not carry the sword in vain." For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoers. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Lord Jesus, I do pray that you'll take the reading of this text and that you will make it an effectual means of salvation to us, that it would introduce us to you or that it will mature us to be more like you, making us fit for heaven. Lord, I pray that you will bless the message, that it will minister to all who hear, Lord, may it bring us through the fires to be prepared for kingdom work. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Romans 13, this is a, an exciting passage, and, and yet it generates some serious debates. If you look back in history, you're going to find a lot of people who are uncomfortable looking at Romans 13. Now, some of you may be looking at me and say, what? We've only read the first seven verses, but uh, this simple This simple chapter ID is is as popular as some of the others. Like if I said 1 Corinthians 13, you know, if you're familiar with that, you know that it's about love. If I go to 1 Corinthians 15, everybody would say, oh, that's about the resurrection. And those of you that know about Hebrews 11, that's the hall of faith. And if you go to Romans 8, you know that's where the Holy Spirit is doing a great work inside of you and working things together. But Romans 13, most of us think it's an application about government. Now, government is a word that, in Christian circles, uh, we don't necessarily warm up to. Uh, most people want to stay away from it. In fact, uh, you know, it, it just—it's—it's it's like uh, when you come together at holiday meals, you're not supposed to talk about religion and politics or government. There's some kind of a, an alienation that comes up in it, and yet this is right smack dab there in the book of Romans, right there in the main section of application. It began in verse in chapter 12, and now we're in chapter 13. Uh, do you believe that this idea is trivial or significant? You know, can we just erase it and say it? No big deal. Doesn't matter. Now, the reason why it sparked such great debate in the past and probably even today is because many people focus on the wrong aspect of it. They see this as an issue of obedience. They, they find that it's focused on the application of it rather than on the concepts that are taught in it. And, and, and let me tell you, it, it goes like this. Uh, if you're focused on obedience, then you read this passage by Romans 13, let every person be subject let every person be in submission. Let every person be subordinate. Yet let every person yield their agenda. Let every person give respect to the people that hold it or to give honor to those who have the positions of power. The struggle is interesting for us. Do we really want to submit? You know, do we need to have a lineup? Who's first? I want to submit to the government. It's really interesting that when you hear about this, uh, you almost forget what Paul has just written. So if you turn back to Romans chapter 12, uh, you're going to see in chapter 12, verse 1, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, that this is all the doctrinal stuff has come from uh, chapter 1 all the way through chapter 11. There's been some awesome teachings about God. And now the application, he says, I beg of you, brothers, this is chapter 12, verse 1, by God's mercies that you would present your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to who? To God, okay? So you get the sense you've got to be acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. And then he says in verse 2, we can't skip over this when we go to chapter 13. He has just told us in chapter 12, verse 2, don't be conformed. Help me out here. To this world. Don't be just conformed to this world. Now, if you read that and now go to chapter 13, verse 1, but let every person be subject to the governing authorities, does this sound consistent? This is part of the reason why we have a struggle when we understand or when we try to understand how to apply this in our own hearts. If the focus is all about obedience then you're going to miss what Paul is really teaching to these folks here in Rome. Uh, This this kind of catches my attention because um, there is a sense in which it's, I I called it, I have to write this down here, Uh, they call it a hyper call for civil obedience, soliciting a quick response to perform to whatever the state expects of you, full and immediate compliance. There are some Christians who believe that's exactly what this text means. They focus on that idea of being subject. Now, the other come to this text, like I do, and I'm hoping that you will see it too, as a hyper expression of grace. I'm hoping that I'm tickling your ears to make you want to pay attention. How do you see grace in this passage, Pastor? I believe that it solicits from its readers a deep gratitude towards God for what God has done. He's he's intervened into this broken world. He has kept us from being as bad as we could be. He has enabled us to do what otherwise could never have been done, to live together on this planet. It takes grace from God. Now, we think about common grace as only God brings rain on the just and the unjust but I also want you to know that there is a beauty to what God has done to bring his common grace to mankind through governing authorities. This passage has, uh, has been discussed by several of you coming to my office in counseling because we've been concerned about some of the, uh, the government's expanse into your personal health decisions. It's been triggered recently in the last couple of years by emergency powers that they have taken. And some of these powers have have been used to dictate employment terms, to restrict access to some business and some medical care and even some of the basic conveniences. And in some parts of this world, in in Canada and Australia, it has been even to limit a person's freedom to move about, requiring that you would remain in your home As if you were under house arrest. Is this all about obedience or is there something more? And that's why I believe there's something more. When you see what the apostle is sharing with this group of believers who are living in the shadow of that huge Roman Colosseum, I've been there and and I'm using that as, as an imagery for you to be able to see these people lived in Rome, they knew what government was. They could see the might and the power. When you talked about Pax Romana, which is, a, which is the peace of Rome, you realize, yes, everybody lived in peace, but why did they live in peace? Because they had a big army. And they had spears, and they had this thing called crucifixion. And if you got out of line, you were shown to be out of line. It's really quite interesting that it was into that world that Jesus chose to come. But if you listen to to our our text today, I want to be able to draw your attention to why I see this as a hyperextension of grace. I want you to see first the gift and then secondly the design and thirdly the functioning of this gift. God gave us the gift of order, the beautiful gift of order. And then secondly, we're going to unpack that by showing how it's designed, how it actually works in your life. And it's explained right there in in Romans 13. And then once you see this designed gift that God gave to mankind, you can see some of the accountability that's in it, how it functions, how it interacts with people like you and me. And that's why I want you to see first the provision of God to bring order into this chaos. Okay, that's the first point. The provision of God to give us the gift of beauty or the beauty of order, so that we would not have to live in utter chaos. Secondly, we're going to see the processing of God's order. Once he puts the order into this world, how does it flesh out? It's more, it, it's more complex and more beautiful than you probably imagined. And thirdly, we want to be able to see how that's enforced. How it, how the, and the key word there you'll see in the text is the word Judgment. It's right there at the end of verse 4. So let's dive right into it now so you can see how this is grace rather than, than just legalism. And uh, the first point is to see it as a gift. Um, the, the provision of God. Mankind has been needing this ever since the fall. And if you go back in Judges chapter 21, verse 25, everybody knows the end, the end verse of the book of Judges. And it simply says this, that everybody did what was right Okay, and if we made it personal, they were doing what I think is right. Now, think about that for a moment. If everybody does what they think is right, then that means that everybody is doing whatever they want to do. There's no restriction. There's no, there's no uh, submission. There's no subjugation. There, just anybody can do whatever. Now, I think I want you to, explain, I want you to see that this is what chaos really is. And if you take the front picture of the bulletin, you can kind of see a little bit of that. The idea that if everybody could just drive wherever they would want to go, uh, life wouldn't be easy driving. I think you might give up your license a little quicker than when you finally got into your 80s or 90s. It would be a dangerous thing to ever pull out onto a road or to go anywhere anywhere. Because if anybody could do whatever they want, they could hit the pedal, they could go on the right side or on the left side, they they could hit it in reverse and just go backwards, they could do whatever they want. That's what happens, and that's what happened back in the time of the judges, and I want to go back to be able to say that God did not leave us in that estate where everybody is just left to to doing this without any kind of restraint. That's where I believe common grace comes into play. Uh, Jehovah-Jireh, it's the term that Abraham heard uh, or used in Genesis chapter 22. When there there was a great need, Abraham was told to offer up his son on Mount Moriah. It was a foreshadowing of God the Father offering up his son. But Abraham was not God, and Abraham's son Isaac was not Jesus. And so when they went through the motions, he said, stop! He said, I will provide it. I will take care of it. And that's why when we always think about what we really need, God has to provide it because we can't. Jehovah Jireh, our provider. In the book of James chapter 1, you find that same thing in verse 17. Uh, I could quote it for you. Every good and perfect gift comes from your father, right? Yes, not from your earthly father, but from your heavenly father. And that's why when Jesus taught us to pray, he was saying, talk to him. Talk to him. Let him know what you need. Because God is able to provide. He can do exceeding abundantly above what we ask or think. Now, I want to paint the picture and give you the setting of why we really needed this gift of order. Because if you go to Genesis chapter 1 verse 31, way at the beginning of the Bible, when Moses is explaining to us what happened after creation, uh, in chapter 1 verse 31, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was, how good was it? Okay, if it was very good, that means there was no chaos, there was no confusion, there was no disorder. There was nobody that was mad at each other. They didn't have to have any prayers of confession. They didn't even have to have an altar to come and confess at. It was all very good. All very good. But I want you to know that it didn't stay that way. And so you end up finding out that that ever since in Proverbs 6, verses uh, 16 to 19, I preached on it not too long ago, where it says the six things that the Lord hates, even seven... And if you look at it, it says there are uh, God thinks that uh, these things are, are miserable. Now, God doesn't do these things. This is what people do. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, and a heart that devises wicked plans, and the feet that make haste to bring it to pass to make the evil happen. A false witness who bears out lies and the one who sows discord among the brothers. Now when you realize that God's perfect order was not intending for us to have all this chaos, to have people have a heart that devises wicked plans. Isaiah chapter 5, during Isaiah the prophet's time, he said, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. They were people that came up with their own ideas apart from God. In Genesis chapter 6, before the flood, you can see how the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in this earth. It was not just a little bit. Everybody, if you look at it, every intention of the thoughts of a human heart was evil constantly. Now... This fits in, of course, with Jeremiah when he says the heart is is, uh, desperately wicked. Who can know it? You can understand all that, but in Psalm 140, even the psalmist David says in verse 2, who plan evil things in their hearts and they stir and stir up wars continually. In the New Testament, James ends up saying, uh, in chapter 4, he ends up trying to explain it to people. Where does all this struggle come from? Inside of us. You see, the reason we need the gift of order from God is because when it's left up to us, we mess it up. We can't do things on our own and individually without making a mess. And that's why if I take you to Genesis 3 where it all started, chapter 3, 3, verse 13, then the Lord God is looking at Eve and he says, what is this that you have done? And of course, you know what the human response is? Uh, The serpent did it. It deceived me. (laughs) And 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 if you ask the man, then he says, oh, it's the woman, God, that you gave me. She deceived me. I mean, everybody is so quick to do the blame game. But the chaos is already in play. Have you ever watched any of those Netflix series? I'm sure you all have a favorite one. Maybe during the COVID you were, or maybe during the snow season you were snowed in and you watch it. Do you realize why that they have an episode after an episode after an episode? Because of the chaos that's created by the way people communicate. And usually they're covering up sexual activities or they're covering up some, other, some kind of dastardly deed. And so the next thing you know, because they cover it up, they never just kiss and make up. It goes on to the next section and to the next one and to the next one. And it keeps you hanging because you're always, we're always looking for resolution. We're always looking for finally for them to kiss and make up like it most of the Disney movies used to do. You know, they would live happily ever after. But now if you watch one of those series on TV, nobody ever ends happily ever after. Chaos always seems to creep in. And no matter how manipulative and no matter how great, the director, they just keep you hanging because we want something good to finally come out of the mess. And most of the time, it doesn't. When you you realize that in Genesis chapter 3, when when Adam and Eve sinned, it was very interesting how God gave them clear instruction. He said, there's going to be enmity now. There's going to be a struggle. There's going to be difficulty." And it's going to permeate every aspect of this human existence. It's not going to be easy to live. You're going to struggle, Adam, to be able to even have, a, have an income. When you work the fields, you're going to be sweating, and there's going to be thorns and thistles. It's going to not come easy. And he says, hey, the family unit... It's going to have struggle, too. If you go to chapter uh, 3, verse 16, he looks at the lady and he says, Eve, I will surely multiply your pain when you have children, and in pain you shall bring forth your children. Your desires shall be contrary to your husband, and he's going to rule over you. How popular is that in 2022. I mean, most people would want to just rip the page out and say, that is so patriarchal, that is so sexist, that is so mean-spirited. I'm telling you that if you go to 1 Corinthians uh, 1440, it's on the top of the bulletin card every week. Uh, On the back page, you're going to find that it says that we want to do things with chaos, right? Now, if you look at the text there, it says, all things should be done decently and in order. I want to encourage you to to grasp that. Hang on to it. Don't just do whatever seems right in your own eyes, but to be able to do things decently and in order. And this passage in, in Romans chapter 13 helps us because otherwise you would try to create the order according to your own imaginations. And then somebody else would do the same. No, what we find in Romans chapter 13 is God's gift of order. He shows us how it is. Now, secondly, I want to show you how it works. Um, how this all comes together is, is found in the next verses. Because the first, time, the, the first phrase about... Um, I'm going to read it for you, Romans 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. The key word there is governing. The key word is governing. If you go into the original language, you're not going to find that this is a political term. It is not. When I was doing the study on this, it, it really just says... Uh, um, the, I think I can turn to the right page and show you a little bit about how this particular text is hard for some people to grasp, but it is, an, it is explained here um, in governing, is, is, the Greek word has to be with superior or above. It doesn't mean governmental per se, but it is an adjective that describes the word authority. Authority. And authority is, is being able to say, you have some uh, power, you have uh, exousia, um, you have this ability, but it comes from outside of you. So that's why you have that term, the, the EX in front of it, the exousia. And so you have this special power, and then so, so he calls it the governing power. Now, I believe that there's a difference here between individual power and governing power. Individual power is when you're responsible for what you are responsible over, yourself. In other words, even when it comes to what food you're going to take, what clothes you're going to put on, um, for the most part, all of us in here get to make those decisions for ourselves. I guess some of you, if you're really young, maybe you get help. And maybe if you're really old, you might get help. But I hope everybody else gets to pretty much to have this individual authority over their being. In fact, that fits with 1 Corinthians chapter 6. What? Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you? And so he says that you ought to use that body to glorify God. You are responsible for that. And that's a power that you have. But in this particular uh, verse 13, he says the governing authorities. He uses this fascinating word that has the huper exo, uh, which means that it is above the average. It is superior. And so there are certain governing authorities that are different than just individual authorities. And that's why I say God gave the gift of those governing authorities. Now, secondly, I was trying to explain to you how this, these gifts work, this gift of order works. It comes to you in multiple ways, almost like a hand has five fingers. I believe that there are three fingers to God's way of bringing order into your world. And uh, if you're following along with me, you'll see that this is how it is designed. It is not by accident. Uh, When you read the particular text again, it says, For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So, in verse uh, verse 1, towards the end, there are two times where it says that it is from God or it is under God. If you go again to the original language, you're going to find that all the word power, which is exousia, is always found under God. It almost makes me feel like doing the Pledge of Allegiance. One nation under God. Okay, what they're trying to say here in the text here is that every authority that you're going to find on the earth is actually, uh, it is subjugated to God. It is under God. There is no authority on earth that is above God or that is even equal with God. And so, when you understand this particular text, God gave governing authorities, and then this, this, and we know that is from God because they're all underneath God. God set them up, and He established it that way. So, our second point is: How does this, this, this governing or this, this, uh, this power get? put out into this world. And I believe when you look there in verses 2, you can see it. Therefore, whoever resists these authorities, resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Now, all of that is connected, but it begins to show you that in order for you to get judgment, how does this authority that God has established reach you? It is by God's design. If you go back to the early catechism, they talk about you know, uh, the, the things that you need to know. Uh, first is, what is your chief purpose or what is your chief end? It is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. In other words, that's a generic overarching thing. When you wake up in the morning, when you go to bed, you glorify God. That fits with 1 Corinthians uh, 10.31. But then he goes on to say, well, how did God show us? What rule did God show us how to glorify him? And the answer then is the word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament. It's the only rule to direct us how we can do that. And then they ask the question, well, what's in the Bible? What do these scriptures principally teach? And the scriptures principally teach two things. They're teaching you about what man, uh, they teach you about man, what man is to believe about God and what duty God is requiring of man. So it has that vertical look about knowing God. And then once you know God, what does God expect of you? How do you live in this life? And then he goes on to say about this God. This God, who is he? He's he's infinite, eternal, unchangeable. And in his being are wisdom, power, notice power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And so you see how it's unfolding that the God who makes us, the creator, is also the God who sustains us. We talk about creation and providence. Providence is the means whereby God holds this world together. Now, in 2022, and even in 2021, and maybe in 2020, some people might have doubted God's providence. They might have thought that God, you know, because I remember the late uh, uh, R.C. Sproul used to say there's no maverick molecule in this universe. But many people have been told that there is a maverick virus out there, and it's going to get you. And it's almost as if God doesn't have control of it. It's almost like it's got a mind of its own and it can do whatever it wants to do. And so we have to step up in order to be able to help because God can't handle it. It's really interesting when you you see this whole idea of creation and providence. I believe that what God has done in establishing his authority, all the authorities that are under him, I believe there are three, and I just want to highlight quickly before I uh, make the application for us. So there are three, and I believe the first is the home, the second is the is the, uh, is the church, and the third is the state. And that's why when you understand it, when he talks about the governing authorities in Romans 13, it is not simply the higher powers that hold the presidency or the governorship or the Caesar back in their day, or, or if you want to say even some Hitler or some kind of fuhrer or um, czar. This is about authority being wielded on three levels. At the home level, at the church level, and at the state level. Now, I tried to be careful here because I didn't want to be about home, church, and state. What would happen if I did that? You would all begin to think, oh, the state has supreme power over the home and, and over, the, over the church. But if I went and said, home, church, and state, oh, then you would say, oh, the home is the ultimate power and the state doesn't have any. Or that it's subjugated. Do you see what happens? We are so wired to be able to say that one is better than the other. Let me start where we all know. Matthew chapter 28 verses 19, or 18 and 19. When you look at the Great Commission, how did Jesus start it? All authority is mine. I got it all! Okay, remember, all authority is underneath him. So we have the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And Jesus says, I get to command it. I'm, I'm put in that position to wield this authority. And that's why I'm arguing that the way he wields his authority, the way that he's in charge and he is over and governing all his creatures and all their actions is that he actually has created three institutions. And these institutions of higher governing are your home, your church, and, your, and the state. Now, all of us already know terms that fit for that. Who's the leader of your home? (laughs) I set you up on that one. If you're a child, it's easy to say, mom and dad. Okay? If you're a wife, what do you say? If you're a husband, what do you say? Now, maybe if you're single, it's easiest. I'm in charge. But the whole basic unit structure goes back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 26. And you hear it at every wedding. It says that, therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one. There is a family unit already at the very beginning that God ordained. And he said, this is good. The two become one. It is a neat thing. And within that unit, you get the explanation of who makes the final decision or how decisions get made. And sometimes uh, the husband and wife work at it in different ways. Some of you have learned by experience how not to do it. And praise God, a lot of us have learned how to do it better. But the whole point is there is authority in that home. And uh, when I quote these scriptures like spare the rod and spoil the... You know what the scripture says. There's authority in the house and you can actually bring punishment on your children when they're wrong. To train them up in the way they should go so that when they're old they won't depart from it. That has not been abdicated to the state nor has it been abdicated to the church. So you have one institution called the home, and you, you know the, the power players in that are, are the husband and the wife, or you could call them the father and the mother. And in 1 Corinthians, you can see in chapters uh, 7, 6 and 7, uh, and even in 11, you can see the structure there that ultimately the head of the home is the dad. It's the father. Now, if I shift to the another one of those fingers of authority is the church. Now, inside the church, if you go to some of the texts that would explain how God gave authority to the church, well, Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus said, the institution of the church, it's real. And I'm going to build my ecclesia. I'm going to build this thing. And if you go to, uh, to Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verses 11, 10, 11, and 12, you'll find out that when he ascended on high, he said, I have this organism called the church, but now I need to put the organization in place. And he gave these gifts of, of leadership. He delegated authority to the apostles, to the prophets, to the pastors, teachers, and evangelists. These are the leader gifts that are inside the church, and we all know them. In today's vernacular, if you go to different denominations, they add a few other words, like priest, monsignor, cardinal. Uh, you can also get bishop. You can get overseer. Uh, you can get elder. You can, you know, there's lots of different terms, but we all know what they are. They're order in the church. There's one more institution that the scripture says he gives delegated authority to, and that is the state. And I can show you in multiple places, including in the beginning of Acts, uh, where the apostles, where they, they came, came out of, uh, uh, of having seen thousands come to Christ at, at Acts 2. Uh, then you end up finding that the magistrates, the local people that were in charge of small pockets of people said, hey, we don't want you here. They tried to cancel them, but you know, they didn't have Facebook back then, so they couldn't cancel it that way. So they tried to put him in jail and said, zip the lip, guy. And of course, if you read the rest of the story, the, uh, the Lord got him out of jail. And uh, they ended up going and did the same thing. And in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, that's where you get that famous verse. Where Peter was told to be quiet by the magistrates. And he said, we have to obey God rather than man. Do you understand how the state... Fits into this. So now, we're in Romans chapter 13. Let every person be subject to these governing authorities that God has put in place. For there is no authority except that is underneath God. Hupo, uh, theo, it's under God. And the authorities that are already there, they are instituted by God. In other words, God has delegated authority to them to maintain order. I like to use the analogy there of putting lines on the road. I'm grateful for lines on the road. I've been in a few cultures and a few countries where they don't have lines on the road. And I'm telling you, it made me appreciate lines on the road even more. (laughs) Now, therefore, if a person resists his authority... They resist what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Now, I want to take us to this next point about now we know the design, and now I want to be able to take you to the function. How does it actually connect with you and I in our life? Um, the, the key word here is at the end of verse 4. And when you say that um, in, at, the end of verse, excuse me, at the end of verse 2, he says, and those who resist will incur judgment. It's from the, from the verb krimmi, but it's krimna. It's kind of got the root word for criminal. And so there's going to be some consequence. Now, this consequence is something that God has already explained in multiple places. In the New Testament, the apostle concluded Galatians, where he says, If you sow to the flesh, you will reap the corruption. If you sow to the spirit, you're going to reap life everlasting. And so you can see there's consequences. And so in this particular text, the apostle is writing to these believers in Rome, and he says, Hey, guys, don't worry. Yes, I know about Caesar. Yes, I know about the games at the Colosseum. You know, and maybe up to this point, they maybe didn't have Nero uh, actually light people up as torches in the city if they named that Jesus is Lord. That came a little bit later. But the idea of persecution came again and again and again to the Christians. And the Roman government wasn't friendly to Christianity not until the 311 A.D., when Constantine was converted and he became the leader of Rome, things changed a little bit. Usually we would say for the best, but it also ushered in some pollution because then people who were not Christians joined the church because it was popular. But now back here in the time of Romans 13, the people that are Christians are not getting favor from Rome. The government authorities are not looking at them and saying, oh, you guys are the best citizens ever. No, he's actually explaining to them that uh, if you do what is right, I'm looking at verse 3, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good. He ends up setting the stage here, and this is why you have to understand as a concept rather than just as an obedience issue. He's teaching us here. He says, look, the government is established with my delegated authority to keep order. They are supposed to keep order by by telling people that do bad to stop and by telling people that do good to keep doing it. In other words, he says that's the good order. That's the principle of this text. And, of course, this echoes back in the Psalms and also uh, in the New Testament or in, you know, where it says that when the people are in authority are righteous, then the people rejoice. And when the people that are in authority are wicked, the people mourn. They're miserable. Their misery index goes up, up, up. Now, so the point here is that government has delegated authority from God to keep order in a society so that we don't all have chaos. And he says, if you do the good things, then you're going to get compliments. If you don't do the good things, then you won't. Now, back in this day, do you think that they could name any good Caesars? It's really quite interesting when you start to realize that the judgment was going to be coming from the government quite a bit, but the principle there was Christians are not anarchists. We are not a law to ourselves. We are not resisting the order that God has set up to keep structure, providence functioning in our world. In other words, how could Romans 8.28 come together if everything was just random, Romans 8 says that God works it all together for the good to them who love God, who are called according to his purpose. And so that's why when I make all this application together, you say, wow. Because this third point is to see the potency that God-given authority brings. There is going to be consequences if you don't conform. Now, did you hear me use the word conform again? Be not conformed to this world. But be ye transformed. James chapter 4 says, If you have friendship with the world, then you are an enemy with God. Or as the old King James says, you are an enmity with God. You see, this is why it's so so critical for us to understand that we don't just have blind obedience to authorities. We need to be able to discern what the authority is advancing. And then when I go through the text of Scripture... um, it is pretty amazing how God has set it up so that we can interact with broken people. The authority was secured, but there was a presence that the government brings or that the governing authority brings that can expose, correct, uh, or bring humiliation if necessary. If you'll go to a familiar text, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, look at how the authority of Scripture changes things. All Scripture is from God. And it is profitable to teach. It is profitable to reprove. It is profitable for correcting. It is profitable for training people in the righteous path. Now, does that sound like it's just nice? No, the word of God actually is able to pierce because it comes through and, it, and it's, it what, it's, it's the standard that doesn't change. And when we as Christians look at the word of God, we realize that. That's why in Romans 13, 4, he says, if you're going to do what God has told you not to do, then you should be afraid. And then he ends up giving this principle of the sword is not in vain. This is what we often argue in Christian circles as capital punishment. Okay, but it doesn't necessarily say electric chair, does it? No, the principle here is that the governing authority, the one that has delegated authority, has the right to bring judgment. Now, in this particular day, the judgment was to bring the sword. If you're going to be in the home, it's not appropriate to bring the sword out. I just want you to know that. You know, the scripture talks about bringing the rod out, maybe. But what is appropriate discipline in the church? Certainly not the sword. The idea of the capital punishment was reserved to the society and it was never reserved to individuals. And as I wrap this, this, uh, this particular point up, if you go back to the end of chapter 12, you're going to see um, in verse 14 and following. Follow along with, with me, if you will. Chapter 12, verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty. But associate with the lowly. Don't be wise in your own sight. Don't repay evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And if it is possible, so far as it depends on you personally, live at peace. Do your best to live at peace. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, say it to the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you heap the coals on his head. So do not not be overcome by the evil doing, but overcome evil with good. And that's why he says, be subject to order. Don't take order individually into your own hands. Leave it up to the governing authorities in those three branches. And he says this, as much as is possible, live at peace with people. Try not to bring out your wrath and your anger because the wrath of God, if you're familiar with Romans chapter one, the wrath of God is poured out against all unrighteousness and he goes to explain how everybody is unrighteous. But there is a righteousness that you can get that's not your own and it's from Jesus. And so the, the, the application of this message as we come to the end is um, God's gracious position God's gracious provision of order brings us to the gospel. First, order is the opposite of chaos. If God left us to ourselves, if while we were yet dead in sins and tr- trespasses, God didn't do anything, guess what we were where we would be? We would be still be dead in our sins and trespasses. Okay? But the scripture says that God intervened, that while we were yet dead in sins and trespasses, Christ came to this earth. So once you realize that, I'm going to tell you Jeremiah 17:9. the truth is still there, that the heart of man is still desperately wicked. The people that are sitting next to you in the same row, they are capable of the same thing that you're capable of, which is ugly, nasty stuff. When we lean on our own understanding, when we fall into the trap of Proverbs 6 that we read, a heart that devises wicked plans, or a Psalm Chapter 1 says, the person that sits with the counsel of the wicked and stands in the way of sinners and sits with the scoffers up against God. There's a lot of people out there that do that. And Scripture says broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there's a lot of people on that broad way. Order. Secondly, order is the blessing of having some lines on the road. If you could bring that picture up of the car crash. I want you to be able to see that on the bulletin cover, the reason we picked that was not because there was just hundreds of cars in the picture. When you're looking at the picture, what do you see in the middle? You see a mess. You see a mess. Now, why is there a mess? Of course, you got fire engines on the bottom there and you have got all those guys with the, uh, the, the firemen standing there, uh, but, but the big mess is that the traffic doesn't flow anymore. What do you think happened? Any of you got those, those uh, criminal mind thinking uh, ways? Oh, this person must have done this and this. Oh, that person must have gone over here. You know? Now, we, we have an accident in the middle, and yet we have traffic all blocked up on the left side, and it's pretty slow on the right side, and you got a cone on the road with, because they're protecting the fire engine from getting clobbered. But can you see? There is order in this picture. How do I know there's order? Well, because I know there's some governing authorities. And I know that somebody put some effort into trying to put lines on the road. And I can tell you that because we're in this culture, people drive on the right side of the road instead of the left. At least that's the orderly way to do it. And when you look at the lines, you can see some white lines with some dashes. Uh, you can see the yellow lines over there. There's a lot of things that are interesting. And you can, you can see that the, the cars that are on the road that have the dotted lines and the yellow lines, they know how fast they can go. There's probably a posted speed limit in everything. People have an idea. This is good order. Now, what happened in the middle, in the HOV lane? Well, it looks like people with red cars got angry. Maybe that was reflecting their personality. But three red cars are stacked up, twisted around, and they're facing the wrong direction. How do you think they ever got facing the wrong direction? Okay, somebody could be going the wrong way. That's true. Somebody could have lost control of their car. Somebody could have nicked somebody in the back and started spinning something. There's a lot of scenarios that we could paint. But what I want you to know is that when people did stay in their lane, they were able to keep moving. But the accidents happen not because there's not good order. It is because sinful people make mistakes. Order is the blessing of having some lines on the road. Not all lines are the same, not all authorities rule well. Some of you have experienced good uh, authorities um, in, in your home. You've had good parents and you follow their example. Some of you had bad parents and you learn what not to follow. Some have experienced poor ecclesiastical experiences. Look into your own church history, look at churches today. The marks of the church are supposed to be the word, the sacrament, and discipline. And yet, in many ways, people don't get disciplined. They just switch churches. Some have experienced poor civil experiences. Some of you have actually, and I know some of you in here, have been under dictators living in other countries. Some of you may feel like you've been under dictators living in this one. Ruthless dictators, feckless leaders, spineless, incompetent, visionless. We all know that people have let us down. But that's the order that you got. How many of you got to pick what country of origin you were born in? How many of you got to pick your parents? We don't get to pick much, do we? And that's why the beauty of order, of God's order, sets things up. Order is what God used to bring his special revelation. If you could bring Galatians 4.4 4 up, then you, and I'll wrap up with this. God, in the fullness of time, did something. He sent forth his son. When all of God's order had lined up, and I even argue that the stars lined up, read about that in, Romans, in Revelation chapter 12. When God set everything in place, even for that little star to get over Bethlehem, for the wise men to follow for the two years, everything was in order. And yet if you were Joseph, you would have felt like it was a mess. If you were Pilate, excuse me, if if you were um, um, Herod, you would have thought it was a mess. How can some guy be born king over here right under my nose? You see, the world doesn't understand how God is working it all together for good. Do you understand how he's working it together for good? Jesus went to the cruel cross. Not because it was easy but because there was no other way. God had ordained that he would be the Lamb of God slain before the foundations of the world. Before he ever said, let there be, and did creation, God had already ordained it. And in order for it to happen in time, God had to preserve all the things that had to come to pass. And I can tell you, if you read Daniel or if you read some of the other uh, prophets, they could tell you about how God had already told us that there was going to be, after the Babylonians, there was going to be the Medes and the Persians, and there was going to be the Greeks, and then there was going to be the Romans. And it's really amazing that Galatians says it so well. In the fullness of time, God worked it together for good. Today, I've been telling folks that I wish you could hit a reset button for 2022. There are so many troubles that are going on in this world. It's hard to find anybody's life that's wonderful. Except maybe my granddaughter. She just bounces. (laughs) And she drinks. Dirty diapers. No guilt, no shame. Change a diaper, no big deal. Sometimes that simplicity is maybe what we need to return to. Do we really trust God? Are we all, all, like the verse that I preached last week, steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. Brothers and sisters, do you trust God? There's lines all over the road. If you could bring up that crash incident, some of you feel like you're one of the red cars. So what happens? We just leave it there, right? Let's just sit here and watch the red car crash. I can tell you, none of us are happy when there's a crash. I mean, you could even see in our own life, my daughter on the first day of law school, she's got her friend, uh, one of the roommates driving right behind her as they're driving down the mountain at Liberty. And uh, before they turn into class, she hits the brakes and the girl behind her didn't hit the brakes and crashed into the back bumper and did a lot of construction underneath it. And I'm like, <laughs> the grace was, my daughter says to the other girl, here, hop in the car. We don't want to be late to class. But that car wreck is still being repaired. Because of the COVID concerns, they can't even get the right parts shipped to Lynchburg. And so it's already been four weeks and she's without a car the whole time. And it's almost like that red car. It's like my, my daughter's life is crashed. Oh, no, how are we going to get her here? How are we going to get her there? How is it going to work? Of course, she's under 25, so you can't even get the rentals from the car company without having to pay more money out of pocket. You know how everything just doesn't work together for good. Yet my daughter says to me, she says, Dad, I've got friends. We just, we just went down to Lynchburg yesterday Uh, We just drove back from Lynchburg yesterday because now Christian's going to be going to Liberty as well. So we're looking for housing situation for them. But um, we sat and had dinner with Hannah because that's all the time she had. She's in law school. She only couldn't make time for dinner for us. Um, But she brought those friends to dinner with her. The joy and the laughter. The beauty, the caring. We were going around thanking the guys and the girls that are driving my daughter around. She hasn't skipped a beat. She has somebody to help take her to church. She has someone to take her to the library at 5 in the morning or 4, whatever time they go. She has somebody that drives her home at night whenever they come home at 9 o'clock or whatever it is. It just amazes me that the mess of the red car is actually something that I'm giving glory to God for. If your life always stayed in its lane and your life never had a close call, Would you need God? The answer is yes. Especially when you realize that your car was going to to wear out because it's appointed unto a man once to die, and after this you stand before God in judgment. I want to tell you that the beauty of this picture is that God's order doesn't get messed up just because of our disorder. Trust him. Trust him. Jesus went to the cross not to save perfect people that are staying in their lanes, but to save people who have messed up, who have crossed the lines, who have gotten on the wrong way, who haven't listened to the stoplights. Are you one of them? I know we all are. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you that this world is not so chaotic. We may feel like everything is going this way and that way, but Lord, when I think about... A flock of birds that have been flying by our house not too long ago that it's amazing that they don't run into each other they don't have lanes in the sky and it's kind of interesting how when you look at some of the geese how they line up and they take this this uh, pattern and you can almost see them flying in that v it's amazing how your order shows up in different ways the heavens declare it but your special revelation is even more amazing Lord, that you would, in the fullness of time, send Jesus. Before I was ever born, you sent him to pay the price for my sin that I could never pay for. Lord, I thank you for this great salvation that is provided to us in Christ. I thank you, O Lord, that you are not just the creator, but you are the one who holds things together in providence. And I am super grateful that you have had special involvement in our lives to show us the orderly way of forgiveness and restoration. Thanks be to God who can give us victory even over the crash of death. Oh Lord, nothing can separate us from your love. In Jesus' name I give thanks for that, amen.